You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Cindy Johnson, award-winning volunteer and chapter leadership committee member of Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Hi, Cindy. Hi, Jeremy. This is episode 104 of Lighthearted, slated for February 15th, 2021. We'll get to today's subject in a minute, but first let's talk about what's happened on this date in history. Got anything, Cindy? Yes, I do. On February 15, 1875, Piedras Blanca's lighthouse on the central California coast was first lighted. The lighthouse today is actually a truncated version of what was originally built. There was an earthquake on December 31, 1948 that damaged the tower. Instead of repairing the damage, the fourth landing, the watch room, and the lantern were all removed, reducing the height of the tower from 100 to 70 feet. Today, the Bureau of Land Management manages Piedras Blanca's light station as part of an historic park and wildlife sanctuary. On February 15, 1873, the Mobile Point Rear Range Lighthouse in Alabama, sometimes referred to as Mobile Point Lighthouse, was first lighted. The light was deactivated in 1966 and it was given to the Alabama Historical Commission. The cast iron tower was dismantled and moved into storage with the intention of restoring it and putting it on display. Sadly, that hasn't happened yet. And on February 15, 1954, the American cartoonist and creator of The Simpsons, Matt Groening, was born in Portland, Oregon. He once said, quote, I judge my life by how miserable it used to be. If I could pay my rent, I was deliriously happy. Now I'm deliriously happy all the time, unquote. On today's episode of Lighthearted, we're heading up to the Pacific Northwest. We're going across the border into British Columbia, Canada to speak with the lighthouse keeper's daughter, Alani Bruton. Cindy, please help me tell our listeners about Alani Bruton and her father, keeper Jim Bruton. Sure, Jeremy. Jim Bruton was born in Wales in 1926, but his family relocated to British Columbia and Canada when he was just one year old. He started working in the logging industry when he was 14. After serving as a merchant seaman during World War II, in 1945, Bruton became an assistant keeper, or junior keeper, at Leonard Island Light Station off the west coast of Vancouver Island near Tofino. After a brief time at Leonard Island, Jim Bruton left the lighthouse service for a while and returned to the logging industry. In 1951, he met and married Evelyn Stockman from Edmonton. Evelyn had no idea she would spend nearly 30 years at lighthouses. Jim returned to lightkeeping in 1958 as a junior keeper at Discovery Island. After a year and a half, he became the principal keeper at Chrome Island off the east coast of Vancouver Island for four years. He then returned to Leonard Island from 1964 to 1968. The Brutons eventually had four children, three girls and a boy. Their daughter, Alani, lived at the light stations until she was 18. Jim Bruton was often heard to say, I have the best kids in the world. The family moved to Sheringham Point, a mainland light station in Shirley, on the southwest coast of Vancouver Island in 1968. Jim Bruton replaced Fred Mountain, the previous keeper, who had died at the station. Bruton's daughter Sharon was wed at the top of the lighthouse in December 1976, with the couple's vows broadcast over CB radio. The Brutons lived at Sheringham Point for nearly two decades until 1986, 
When Jim Bruton retired, today Jim's daughter, Melanie Bruton, remains a very active volunteer of the Sheringham Point Lighthouse Preservation Society, which was formed in 2003 and took ownership of the lighthouse and surrounding land in 2015. I spoke with her recently. Let's listen to that conversation now. I'm speaking with Elani Bruton, who is the uh, daughter of lightkeeper Jim Bruton, who is a, a keeper at several light stations in British Columbia, including about 18 years at Sheringham Point, which is mostly what we're going to talk about today. And Elani was just telling me she lives just a few miles from uh, Sheringham Point lighthouse uh, near near the water. And another thing I was just talking to Ilani about was the pronunciation of her name. I wasn't quite sure about it. And Ilani had kind of an interesting story behind uh, where your name comes from. And before I before you say that, let me just say thanks so much for joining me today. I do really appreciate it. No problem, Jeremy. I'm, I'm happy to do the podcast with you. Uh, yeah, I was uh, named after a friend of my mom's. We, I was born in the Bella Coola Valley in, in the Bella Coola itself, and Ilani was a First Nations lady, her given Indian given name being Ilani, and uh, mom really liked it when she met the lady, and she was expecting me at the time, and so I got that name. Well, it's a nice story, and it's a, it's a nice name, so thank you for thank you. for explaining that. So let's talk about your, a little bit about your, your father's career and about your, your family's uh, life at the light stations. First of all, correct me if I if I've got any of this wrong, please, but uh, I understand your father first became a lightkeeper in British Columbia in 1945. He was born. First of all, he was born in Wales. Is that is that correct? That's correct. Yes. Yeah. Born in mm-hmm. Wales. In fact, uh, tomorrow would be his birthday. He would be 95. Let me just mention that we are speaking on Monday, January 11th. So his birthday was January 12th. Oh, that's that's, that's nice. Okay. So as I was saying, your father first became a lightkeeper in 1945. He was assigned to Leonard Island. It wasn't actually assigned. Back in those days, if a lighthouse keeper, in this case it was Bill Stout, and he needed a, a relief keeper. I think he was out there, he and his wife, by themselves. And he had actually hired my step-grandfather, who was out there for a short period of time, and wanted to come off of the lighthouse, and my dad had gone up to Tofino. The family was up there looking for work. My aunts and my grandmother were working in the cannery. And so my step-grandfather asked my dad if he was interested, so dad then went out and worked for Bill. Bill would have hired dad on his own. He may have even paid him on his own, and then the government would have sent someone else up later. But when it's a temporary situation like that back in those days, Bill would have hired Dad himself. So Dad wasn't actually working for the government ah. at that point. Okay. Well, thank you for clarifying that. I wasn't wasn't mm-hmm. aware that that was the situation. So if I have it right, he didn't, he didn't spend that much time doing that, that work at that time, but then he went on to work in the logging industry for, for some years? That, that's correct, yes. Okay. He had already worked in the logging industry, as I understand, starting when he was something like 14 years old. Uh, he had, yes. He was a little bit of a hooligan, and he used to run away from home and uh, <laughs> get work in the logging industry. And my grandmother would send the authorities to find him and bring him back. <laughs> and uh, this probably started when he was about 12. Ah. And when he was 14, he just said, look, quit bringing me home because I'm just going to leave again. <laughs> and so my grandmother was like, fine, go make your way in the world. That's the way it's going to be. So that's what he did. 
Wow. <laughs> so he left logging and became a, a lightkeeper again in 1957. I have that correct? Yes. And, That's correct. Yeah. The government had a record of him having worked at Leonard, and they primarily hired individuals who had a background serving in the Navy or as emergency seamen. In fact, if you didn't have that background, you couldn't work in the, as a Canadian uh, keeper, at least not on the West Coast. So they sent a letter and they offered him a station. And mum was expecting my older sister at the time, and it was a bit remote. And she said no, she didn't didn't think it was a good idea. So they declined the offer. A couple of years went by, and they sent out another offer. And mum was expecting me, and they again thought it was a very isolated station, and they decided not to accept it at the time. And uh, then the third time it came around, my dad said, you know, it's a good opportunity. The logging industry is off and on. And he felt that the government will only ask you three times. And once you've declined three times, that's it, you're done. Mm. So they, she was expecting my younger sister at the time. So they accepted the offer and went to the lighthouses in March of uh, 1957. And uh, the first one was Discovery Island, is that right? And that's then, correct, yeah. And Chrome Island? And then Chrome Island, which the locals called Yellow Rock. Oh, okay. I know it's famous for its petroglyphs, right? Uh, yes, it is. Yeah. And then back to Leonard Island, and then Sheringham yep. Point? And then Sheringham. Mm-hmm. What's the first light station you can remember? I can remember Discovery. I was uh, two when we went there, or had just turned two, and uh, I can remember quite a number of things at Discovery Island, including climbing the water tower when I was four, which I wasn't really supposed to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Probably my first big spanking. <laughs> That's pretty good at four. Wow. I was a little bit independent. <laughs> I guess so. It runs in your family, I guess. I think so. Well, and my mom was teaching my two older siblings, and she had the baby. And so I had a tendency to wander and make my own entertainment and you know, follow dad or the dogs or whatever I could get into. <laughs> what else do you remember about those those early stations, Discovery Island and Chrome Island? Discovery Island, it was a little lonely for my mom, I think. There was a, a senior keeper there, Shelto Fox, who we stayed in touch with and right up until he passed away. Uh, Shelto was a bachelor, and so... We were the only other people there, except for um, there was property on part of the island that was owned by a fellow named Captain Beaumont, and he would come over and stay in a house he had there, but there was no sort of social contact for my mom, no female contact. So that was that was her first experience to lighthouses. She told my dad she would give it six months, and at the end of six months, she was starting to enjoy it, so they decided to stay. Hmm. Well, I'm glad she enjoyed it because the family ended up having uh, quite a few years at the lighthouses. Uh, we sure did. <laughs> yeah, just about 30 years in all, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So what about Chrome Island? What do you remember about that? Chrome Island, when we went there, was a one-man station. So again, fairly lonely. Um, it's not a very big island, um, but it was it was close to the south end of Denman Island, and we got to know an old bachelor uh, who lived over there with a multitude of cats. You could go over, and he had a, a, a shack, and it, we would go over in the boat, and he would say, oh, here, kids, look at this, and he'd pull a box of kittens out from under the bed or out from under the stove, and there were cats 
everywhere. <laughs> so um, that was entertaining for us as, as little kids. Hmm. But the water there was quite warm, too, so it's where we all learned to swim, including huh. my mom. And our house was very old. It was in pretty bad shape, so they decided to build another house. But what they decided to do first was build a junior keeper's house because the first summer we were there, we logged more hours of fog, I think, than had ever been logged. And it was really too much for one person to look after everything. That particular light at that time still had to be wound at night. The weights had to be wound up twice a night. So you've got a keeper who's got to be up twice during the night, plus up and turning on the fog alarm engine off and on all night long and all day long. So it was a little bit too much for one person. Sure. So after uh, discovery in Chrome Island, uh, the family went to Leonard Island. Back out to Leonard, a much larger station, a three-man station. So there was dad and two junior keepers. And um, sometimes there were keepers with other kids. Uh, One family, Joan and Ian McNeil, they had five kids. And Ian stayed on to become a lighthouse keeper on other stations, including Saturna Island, and uh, retired from lighthouse keeping, you know, a number of years ago now. But um, at least then we had some kids that were our own age and, you know, fun to play with. So it was... was, uh, I think growing up in that situation as a kid, when you don't know anything else, you're not lonely. You make your own entertainment. But nevertheless, when someone came along and we had other playmates, it was it was uh, enjoyable, that's for sure. One of the things, uh, I think it was in the uh, interview you did with Rebecca Quinn that I, I saw on, on YouTube, you talked about the uh, large lens at Leonard Island. It was a first-order Fresnel lens, right? Yes, it was. And uh, you could get right inside it and stand up. It was it was quite uh, there there when you see those big lenses they're they're quite a thing of beauty. They sure are. It was after you were there, but the, the uh, word is that the the lens instead of being saved was actually just dumped into the ocean. It's not unusual in both I think the U.S. and Canada back before people realized their historic and and monetary value. Yeah, it you know we we grew up in a different society where a lot of things when it was considered garbage were just tossed away and certainly that was the case with that one my understanding was that they hooked onto it with the helicopter and flew it out and and let it go the the tower there was a wooden structure and had the bottom floor and the second floor had a staircase that wound up the side of it I think I think it was a hexagon that tower and it was quite large and it was actually meant or built for uh, someone to live on the first two floors of it which we did have happen for a short period of time. The Bergthorsons lived in there uh, for a, a short period of time while a new house was being built. Theirs was torn down and a new one was being being constructed on the same spot and there was nowhere else for them to go, so they were, they moved into the tower for a while. Back to uh, life at Leonard Island, you were homeschooled there, is that right? We were homeschooled right from the get-go. The correspondence division of the uh, Souk School Board would send out packages, you know, okay, you're in this grade, this is your package, and it was sequenced throughout the year. So when you got your package, we didn't take holiday vacations like at Christmas or Easter or anything like that or long weekends. If we wanted to do our schoolwork during that time, we did our schoolwork, which resulted in 
and, and we set our own hours. So that resulted in us often having our schoolwork finished in May. And mm. we would head out on vacation off of the island. Dad had built a, a trailer we towed behind the car. And we would go and visit uh, family and friends whose kids were still in school because they were in the regular school system. It also meant that if we were having a day where the weather was good and as children we were having difficulties concentrating on our studies, mom would get fed up with us. She'd say, here's your lunch, go to the beach, and I don't want to see you guys back here for two hours, but you're working till 6 o'clock tonight. Hmm. And we'd be like, woohoo, and off we'd go for a two-hour lunch break. We'll move on to, to Sheringham Point. Now, you were, what, about 12 years old when the family moved yeah. there? Mm-hmm. Yes, I had just turned 12. Okay. How did it happen that your father was transferred to Sheringham Point? Once a year, uh, the lighthouse keepers would have to fill out a form saying where they would be willing or wanted to transfer to. And they usually had to give three choices. If they didn't want to leave, then you just wrote in your current station in the three spots. So when it got to that year and, you know, they were filling out their form, they didn't know where they wanted to go. Nothing was coming up. And and Fred Mountain, who was the current keeper down at Sheringham, had no plans to retire. But Dad wrote Leonard Island, and I think he wrote Leonard Island again, because if they couldn't go anywhere. And then they thought, oh, the heck, they would just throw Sheringham on just as a um, why not. You know, Mm -hmm. there was no particular reason. They had to put something in the spot, so they put Sheringham, because it would be a nice station to get to where the kids could go to school. And Fred passed away, and Dad was the only person who had put in for it. Hmm. So he was notified that he had the transfer. It was contested by some senior keepers who wanted the spot themselves, and Dad won the position because they had not applied for it. (laughs) And so it was just automatically then it was Dad's position. Life obviously was was quite different at Sheringham Point being on the mainland compared to the offshore stations where the family lived. Would you say it was, was better overall? I think it was much better for my parents. Mom finally got to have a bit of a social life. Neighbors could come and go, and people popped in to visit on a fairly regular basis. And and I think that she she no longer had to teach us. She continued her studies to the end of the school year, and then we were enrolled in the local school. And so she finally got to have that break. She had been teaching us for many years at that point, and getting into the higher grades and newer math and newer things coming along, she would have to stay up until all hours of the morning to study our lessons for the next day in order to teach us. So that was a, a huge break for my mom. How about you? Did you uh, take to it quickly? Did you like life better at Sheringham Point than the earlier places? You lost a lot of freedom as a kid. So you move into this place that now you, you can't, just go around willy-nilly and have two-hour lunch breaks. You've got to get up in the morning, get on a bus, go mm. to school, and you're <laughs> stuck there all day. Yeah. So that loss of freedom was, I think it was really felt by all of us. Yeah, I can see that would be uh, take a lot of uh, adapting. Think, on the other yeah. hand, it was nice to have neighbors and have people pop in and be able to drop off at a neighbor's and have a visit. So that was that was good, too. Sure. If I understood right, you lived in a new house that was uh, had just been built there at Sheringham Point just before your family moved there? Yes, it was a few years old. Not too old, yeah. And the junior keeper lived in the, the old house, the uh, I guess the original that's, house there? That's correct. 
was the the new house that you lived in there was that a, a pretty comfortable place to live it um was the same design as we had lived in at Leonard and had lived in at um, Chrome Island. Okay. So, yeah, and, and the house at Leonard and the house at Chrome, we moved into those when they were new builds. We were the first people to live in those. Mm-hmm. And it was, like I say, the exact same uh, house. They had a building plan, and that was the one that, that they used for senior keepers, and they had a specific one that they used for junior keepers. And they were well-heated and everything, very pretty comfortable? They were. When we first went to stations, it was wood heat, wood, wood furnaces, wood-burning stoves. And over time, you could get a, a kit to convert that to an oil-burning stove. And so any that we moved into that had the old wood stoves, Dad converted over. But by the time we got down to Sheringham, they were, it was oil-heated, oil furnace, oil stove. Uh, it sounds like uh, a lot of people visited the lighthouse at Sheringham Point, as I did uh, five years ago. I, I got to visit there, but there were no people there, of course, now. A yeah. lot of people a visited. Lot, yeah. and it was um, in featured in some magazine, I don't even know what magazine, but in the U.S., and so we had people who came up because they saw that article, so they came from the States to visit. Mm-hmm. And then we had... Um, it was featured on the cover of the telephone book in the Victoria area, huh. and that brought a lot of visitors out. I read that there were 4,000 visitors one year, which might not sound like a lot compared to some of the you know leading uh, tourist attraction type lighthouses. But for a fairly remote place like that, 4,000 is a, is a lot of people. And I'm just wondering, yeah, when the, uh, when visitors showed up there, what did they expect? Did they expect uh, maybe somebody in the family to give them a tour of the place, or what? what you know, what were they hoping to get out of it? Some people expected it to be a place where they could just come and hang out. Mm-hmm. They wanted to picnic there, and you know, practically set up camp. I think, not realizing or not understanding that it was not that sort of a site. Um, I remember arguments ensuing on occasion with people who said it's public property and you're a civil servant and because it's public property we can come and do what we want here. But it was not that accessible. Most people, I think a lot of people wanted to go up in the lighthouse but that was closed to the public and some people you you would take up on a tour and that, but but we weren't tour guides. We were there to, uh, you know, do the work of the Coast Guard. Yeah. Well, I've heard similar stories. I've heard about, uh, like, lighthouses in Maine where, you know, visitors would just walk in the front door and sit at the kitchen table and expect service and that kind of thing. So they, yes. <laughs> they had to start locking the doors, I think. So I have a book here, Sheringham, a Canadian heritage story that was uh, – written by Rebecca Quinn from help uh, with help from various people and I know you were quite involved in it yourself but we'll, one of the we'll talk more, maybe talk more about the book in a little while but one of the things that's mentioned in the book is that tame deer are very common around Sheringham Point the book tells they about were. yeah there's one deer yeah. especially I think that meant something to your family uh, yeah. yeah there were deer there when we went and they had been fed by the mountains uh, Fred and, and Nellie had been hand feeding these deer so of course as kids we were delighted they would come up and you could pet them scratch their ears you know they ate out of your hand they were very very tame but people came down one day i happened to be over 
visiting mom and dad that day, and it was early in the morning, and these people drove in the gate, came up and knocked on the door. They had been driving down from Up Island, from Port Renfrew, and had seen this little deer on the side of the road. So they stopped to investigate, and it was alive, but it had just been born. It was, And it was very tiny, even for a newborn. The deer here often have twins or triplets, and we suspect it was probably a triplet. It was quite small. My parents had toy Pomeranian dogs, and it was no bigger than the, the little Pomeranian dog. Wow. So we got a hold of the local veterinarian, and the game and wildlife people knew that we had tame deer, and uh, we were able to raise this deer, or mom and dad were able to raise this deer, and she named him Don uh, because he was found at, at sunrise. And uh, one of his favorite foods was graham crackers, and he would come and walk it in the house even when he had horns and looking for his graham cracker. (laughs) Very, very tame, very friendly. I guess so. Besides the deer, I imagine there's other wildlife around there. How about uh, bears and cougars, any of that? Yes, um, bears, cougars, raccoons, otters, you name it, it's it's there. We had uh, chickens in a, a chicken coop and they would come out during the day and you know wander around the yard and stuff but one little bear decided that he wanted to eat the chicken feed so dad looked out and here this bear had stuck his head through the little door that the chickens would come out mm. of and so dad picked up a grass rake that he had there and went up to the chicken coop and whomped it across the rump with this <laughs> the um, grass rake and the poor little bear, he just about fit through that little square door. He he came out huffing and puffing, and it scared the heck out of him, and <laughs> off he ran. And I don't think he ever came back. <laughs> he learned his lesson. He, he was just, yeah, that was, that was a good fright for him. Cougars, we did have cougars in the area. Unfortunately, one of our junior keepers shot one of them one day from his kitchen window. Mm. And uh, we didn't really do that sort of thing. We like to have them around. And uh, when you've got a lot of deer, you can expect that, yeah, you're going to have a cougar in the area. And there was no reason for him to have shot it. It wasn't doing anything. We had uh, a relative in the area who was visiting, and he was a, he loved to go hunting. And so he came down and he asked if he could have the, the hide. And so he and my sister skinned the cougar, and uh, he, he took it back with him to the mainland, to Vancouver, and had it properly tanned and got the proper certificates so that he could keep it and uh, have it in his home because you're not allowed to just skin them and keep cougar skins. But uh, once he got all the certificates and everything, and he still has it to this day. We were talking about it not long ago. You mentioned chickens uh, a minute ago. First of all, were the chickens for, for eggs pretty much? Yes, they were for eggs. We also had somebody in the area who had some ducks and wanted to get rid of their ducks. And so we took the ducks and had those for a while and ate their eggs as well. And at one point, mum and a neighbor decided they wanted to raise some geese. And we got some eggs and incubated them. I think we only ended up with one goose out of it. And he became such a pet, we never would have been able to eat him. So... (laughs) So, you know, that sort of thing. I had a horse for a while, and um, my dad twice had um, bought a young steer or heifer and raised it there for meat, and then, uh-huh. you know, took it off and had it had it uh, processed so that they could have the meat from it. The government kind of frowned on you having 
cattle and that there. Mm. But because it was a short-term thing, nobody ever said anything to him about it. And he just did it the twice, right. two times. Okay. What about pigs or sheep or anything like that? Not, nothing like that? No, we never had anything like that. So where else did you get your food? Was there a store you could actually drive to from there? Yeah, uh, there was a store in Souk. It was only um, uh, 12 miles from the lighthouse, so we could go in and get supplies there into to the city, into Victoria. And when you live on the more remote stations, the lighthouse tenders, the ships, brought your supplies, and uh, you ordered them uh, for two months at a, a time so that you could... Um, if the lighthouse tender came up once a month, but if the weather was bad, they couldn't offload. And so they would wait for a short period of time, 24 hours, I think it was. And then they would call and say they had to keep going because they had all of the other stations on their line. They had all of their supplies and their perishables. So they had to continue on their way. And there wouldn't be another lighthouse tender for another month. And if the weather was bad, you might not be able to get off the station before the next delivery. So you always ordered your supplies to last two months at a time. It wasn't unusual at Leonard for the families, the wife and kids to not get off for for six months at a time. But at Sheringham, you you bought your own food. Uh, we bought our own. We, we uh, just went to the local store like everybody else in the mm-hmm. neighborhood. Did the tender come to Sheringham for other reasons? No. No, it did not. Mm -hmm. There was no landing facility there, and because there was a road in and out, we were off the list. They they didn't come by. Okay. I have to ask you this next question. You know I have to ask ask you. There are, in fact, almost everything you read on on the internet about uh, Sheringham Point, and the the book also talks about it, there's a a ghost story connected to it. And so many lighthouses have uh, something like that attached. If you dig a little bit, there's... There's often these stories, but this is a pretty interesting one. What can you tell me about the, the ghost at the Sheringham Point Light Station? We believe, my family believes, that it was Fred Mountain. And we, it, it, it's interesting because this book came out, and uh, my brother's five years older than I am, and he's one of the people who saw him in our house. I was down just the other day to visit my brother a few days ago, and he said, that book you gave me, he said, when I opened it up and I was going through it, he says, I came to this picture of a man, and he said, I thought to myself, that's the guy. Holy cow. That's the guy I saw (laughs) in Mom's and Dad's house. Wow. So he says, I'll find the picture for you. So he opened it up, and he showed me the picture, and I said, yeah, that's Fred. And he said, that's the guy. He said, I was sitting there in Mum's rocking chair, which faced down the hallway, and the door opened to Mum's and Dad's, or to one of the bedrooms down the hall, and this guy walked up the hallway and went into Mum's and Dad's bedroom. So my my brother looked around, and everybody was there, and he said, I just saw a guy going in the bedroom, and and Dad said, what are you talking about? He described the fella, and Dad said, oh, that's Fred Mountain. And my brother said, who's Fred Mountain? (laughs) And so he said to my parents, can I go in your bedroom? And they said, well, sure. So he opened the door and went in. There was no one there. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, uh, you know, and Fred, certainly we we felt that he had come in through the basement door one evening when my sister and I had gone to bed down in my room. We had company staying in her room, and we heard somebody come through the locked, double-locked basement door and walk across the basement. The basement light was on, and so you could see light out from under my, my bedroom door, yeah. but it didn't. There was no shadow that went past the end of our door. And if 
somebody normally was walking by, there would be a shadow. They went up the stairs. They stopped at the top. And two of the stairs creaked. And when this, whatever it was, went up the stairs, we heard them go up the stairs, but the stairs didn't creak. Mm. And they stopped at the top, didn't open the door, turned around, came back down, went out the door, and we were like, holy smoke. So we'd gone up because we'd, we'd checked the door when we went to bed and it was locked. And it was the only other door in there open from the outside. The door was still double locked and we went upstairs and everybody was accounted for. We don't know what that was, but we assumed it was Fred. <laughs> Some pretty strong uh, circumstantial evidence there, I'd say. So yeah. were you, was it scary when you're hearing those things? It seems, no, no, no we, we were not raised to be afraid or fearful of, of things we didn't understand. Right. And so when we first encountered, you know, the, the first strange thing that occurred, we just said, oh, well, it must be Fred Mountain or it's somebody. And then it, it became, well, it must be Fred Mountain. And certainly after he was seen by my brother and also a neighbor lady saw him uh, in the same hallway and she knew him very well, and she saw his image as well. Wow. And uh, they used to visit quite often, and, and they knew Fred and Nellie really well. Yeah. And so we were like, well, from everything we'd ever heard, he was a very uh, kind and gentle man, and we had no reason to fear him. Yeah. So we were like a, a little disconcerting, you know, when it's late at night, and, and you hear somebody going past your bedroom door, and nobody's supposed to be there. But, yeah, it was just one of those things. Well, it kind of fits into the, there's a lot of uh, stories of, you know, similar stories of lighthouses, light stations, uh, po- possibly being, uh, I don't know, I don't like the word haunted, but visited by, uh, you know, light keepers of the past. And to me, it's the, these people are so attached to their, their stations, uh, so devoted that it makes sense to me that even, you know, after they've left this plane of existence or whatever, that they might still be hanging around in some form. So, you know. I may go hang out there myself. Yeah. yeah <laughs> I wouldn't blame you. I wouldn't blame you at all. Let's talk about the duties of the keepers a little bit. Besides operating the light and foghorn at a place like Sheringham Point, what were some of the, the other duties of the keepers there? Well, you were always watching out for um, mariners and having difficulty. Uh, you know, and it it wouldn't be unusual for the government, uh, the Coast Guard, to give you a call on the radio phone and say, we've had a report of, can you check it out? Someone in the neighborhood thinks they see a flare, can you check that out? And, um, of course, if we saw anything like that, it was also our responsibility to report it. Anything that might be a detriment to navigation, sometimes you had large logs or different things floating in the strait, and we would have to report that so that a notice could go up uh, or go out so that ships were aware of it and and uh, didn't run into whatever it was. Did you and your siblings learn to operate the uh, the equipment, the, the light and the foghorn? We did. All of us did. It, it, certainly at Chrome Island from a very early age, we all knew how to put the light on um, or to start the foghorn. Foghorns are under pressurized air. There's usually a big tank that's involved for the compressed air. And it was important for, for that tank to always have some sort of charge in it because we might need to use it if something had happened to our parents to use it as a signal. And the same at Sheringham, you know, although there we, we did 
after a couple of years get a telephone and so we had another method of calling out and getting some assistance but when we were on remote stations where we were the only ones there and as kids we might need to sort of find a way to alert um, boats or whatever that we were having a difficulty and to get some assistance for ourselves. Electricity came into uh, a lot of these places uh, fairly late in the game, especially the the offshore stations. I'm wondering if you remember uh, the any of the lights having still operating on on kerosene lamps, or there was everything electric by that time. No, the first station we went to, Discovery Island, the generator was there and the house was wired, but it wasn't connected, and I I'm not quite sure why whether it was something to do with a reluctance on the lighthouse keeper's part. He was an older person. Perhaps he didn't understand um, the electricity and how it would work. Perhaps he didn't know how to hook it up, and no one had come to do that. So my dad had a fairly good understanding of electricity and, in fact, wired the church in Bella Coola for the uh, native uh, side of Bella Coola had a united church that was not wired, and so he put electricity in that for them. And so he made the connections in that so that we no longer had to have the kerosene lamps in use in the house. I'm wondering if you were ever left in charge of the station. Did that ever happen? I know there was a junior keeper, but uh, was there ever a time when you and or your siblings had to kind of be in charge of the place? There were occasions where I would be there and would answer the radio phone if my parents weren't there, or maybe they had to go off-site and uh, we might not have somebody in the junior house or perhaps they were also off-site and we would do radio sked it was called for the scheduled current weather reports and that but i know that my brother looked after the lighthouse in 1975-76 i had moved to australia my parents had come down to visit with me and spend a bit of time with me, and my brother looked after the lighthouse for them while they were away. Hmm. And on a couple of occasions, my younger sister Sharon also stood in for short periods of time as junior keeper, and you know, probably off the payroll, but uh, she might have been paid. I don't recall. And you know, did did what needed to be done. It Sorry. wasn't unusual for the for the radio phone to ring, and my parents were away one evening, and the phone rang, and. They said, oh, we've had a report of a a boat on fire near you. And I said, well, I'll go and check. So I went and I looked and came back and said, there was no boat on fire, but across on the United States side of the Strait of Juan de Fuca on Washington State, I said, I can see a fire about three miles back from the coast. So I gave them some coordinates from the map and said, this is close to where it is. And uh, it turned out it was a small forest fire or a controlled burn, maybe a logging burn right. that was going on. And, um, you know, but it was important to have somebody in the area in case it was a boat fire and, and you know, that had to be reported. So lots lots of times we, we dealt with small issues like that. Speaking of boats, I understand you, you didn't have a boat at Sheringham Point. The station didn't have a boat, which is kind of amazing to me. Did that create any problems? It, it did on the, the one occasion where a, um, a fish boat ran up on the reef, and it was a fairly calm day, and it was fairly clear, so I guess the person who was the skipper got distracted and, you know, just wasn't paying attention, and the boat ran up on the reef, so Dad reported it, called it in, and they called back and said, well, you're to go out and, and take the people off the boat, and uh, 
we had no station boat, so there was no way we could do that. And um, as it happened, there was like it was a calm day, so there were other fish boats going by. They were heading out to an opening, and so somebody, you know, went about. On, we saw another boat pull up, and you know, they went over to it. They were able to get it off the rock. It had a double hull, and only the outer hull was damaged, so they were able to continue on to the next place to get repairs done but had it been a more disastrous situation there was nothing we could have done to help we had a situation where there was a dad and a neighbor had gone fishing they had gotten a small maybe a 12-foot aluminum boat it was quite a small boat and they had managed to get it in the water at Sheringham which is as you you know, it was just a rocky point. But they got it launched, and they went out, and they were just right off the point doing some salmon fishing. And they looked up, and uh, a squall was coming down the Straits of Juan de Fuca, and it was it was black and looked nasty. And there was one other small boat about the same size out there. And so Dad yelled at the fellas, and he motioned them in, and they sort of waved, and he yelled again, and he pointed to this weather cell coming down on them. And they just sort of waved them off, ah, whatever, sort of a, a wave, and carried on. There was nothing Dad could do. They carried on heading towards Souk, and Dad and the neighbor came into the station, and they saw this weather cell catch up to this little boat, and it disappeared into it because it was mm. just a thick, nasty little storm coming down the straits. And they were never seen alive again. That was the end. Wow. They, they discounted Dad's warning, and... They really shouldn't have. Both bodies were recovered later, at a later time. So that sort of thing. Had he had a better boat, he could have possibly have zipped down to them and said, no, you guys need to get off the water now. But without a station boat, we couldn't do that. Yeah. When it came to the lighthouses, the boats that were provided on the stations weren't necessarily meant for search and rescue operations. Right. They were there provided for the keepers to be able to get off the station and get supplies when they needed them. But still, it amazes me they didn't provide a, a boat uh, in, for case of, in case of emergency like that. No, they felt that we could get in the car and go and get our own supplies, so we didn't need a boat. Mm. So the, the station at Sheringham Point was automated uh, right around the the time you left. I'm a little unclear on the timeline there. I see different dates for the automation of the station. It was automated after you left, is that right? After. Yes, most of it had been automated. Um, The light was being kept on 24 hours a day, and um, it was the, the the lens had been removed, so it was a different type of light, a different type of beacon light. And the foghorn was still in use, but was more automated itself. And uh, But somebody still had to turn it on. But when Dad left in 86, it was the, the station was still um, occupied for two more years with relief keepers, with okay. uh, Kurt C. Hack and his wife. And in 19, I believe it was, 88, they fully automated it and de-staffed the station. Okay. That's why I see uh, 86 and 88 in different places. Uh, yeah, it was still considered uh, semi-automatic in, um, in in 86 when Dad retired. Right. But you're, so you were the last family living there, right? Uh, am I correct in saying that, that you were the last we were family? The last family that was living there. Mm-hmm. When Dad left, he had um, unused vacation and furlough. And so he hired Erica and Kurt to come and man the station. So I, 
my understanding of talking, I used to go down and have coffee with Kurt and Erica quite often, and my understanding from uh, Kurt here a few years ago when I was talking to them was that after about, oh, 18 months, he had to go to relieve at another station. He had promised to keep her, he would help him out. So at that point, I think that after Dad's year was up and he had said no, he was definitely retired, he wasn't going back, then the government changed Kurt's status from being a, just a relief keeper to being a temporary keeper. And then because he had to go help another uh, keeper out, then Erica was put in that position as being a temporary keeper. So then Erica was on the, the payroll and on the books as being the temporary keeper for the station. So uh, she would have been the last paid keeper at Sherrington Point. Mm-hmm. Thanks for clarifying that for me. But uh, I'm wondering... How did you, did you have any special feeling? Well, you weren't actually living there the, towards the end of the, the family stay there. No. Is that is that correct? That's correct. I was had been away from home for some years at that point. Yeah. But I'm wondering if, if your father or the family had any feelings about uh, the station being automated and being the last family there uh, as far as, uh, you know, just a big transition. We weren't in agreement with automation. I can't say that even today that I'm in agreement with all of the stations being automated. I know some are still manned, and I think that that's a good thing. Certainly seen search and rescue out there today looking for someone or something. just says to me that somebody should be there looking out a little more closely for our local people and for people who get themselves into difficulties out there. It's easy enough to do. But as for leaving the station, my dad was ready. It was time to go. Speaking of the staff stations, there there's still over 50 in Canada, mostly on the West Coast, mostly in B.C. And yeah. uh, some months ago, I interviewed uh, Karen Zacharuk. I don't know if you've had any contact with her. She's been no. the keeper for, for quite a few years now at Cape Beale. And uh, it was really fun talking to her. And, you know, there's still plenty of reasons to have people on those islands, as you say, you know, watch for people in trouble and to report the weather and sea conditions and uh, making sure the aids are, you know, working properly. And I mean, there's there's a lot of reasons for them to be there. So um, absolutely. Here's a, a sad part of the story here. The local fire department there burned down the keepers houses and other buildings at Sheringham yeah. Point, except for the lighthouse. How did you and your family feel about that? I don't like to see what I consider to be historical buildings burnt to the ground. I really was not happy with it. My family wasn't happy with it. You know, it's, it's because once it's gone, it's you can't bring it back. It's it's unfortunate. The, our house, when it was burnt down, it had sat empty for a couple of years, and uh, people were going in there and partying and doing who knows what because they could, you know, they could just go in and do whatever. Yeah. And the government was afraid that it was going to accidentally get burnt down or be torched with arson or whatever. And then a young man who had been there partying with uh, some other people disappeared. And my understanding was that his clothing was found down on the rocks. And mm. it was believed, uh, some people believed that he may have taken his own life and the government was like, okay, we need to put a stop to this. And so that's when the, the decision to burn that house was, was taken. I would rather have seen that they had left a caretaker on the station, but uh, the government didn't didn't want to do that. I read in one article that your family planted daffodils at Sheringham Point, and uh, I think the article was from 2013, and it said they were still blooming. 
Uh, is that is that true? And are the daffodils still blooming there today? That is true. There were a few clumps of daffodils that were doing very poorly because they hadn't been tended to in years. So we dug them up and separated these big clumps and moved them all over the place and, and replanted them. And it's quite spectacular to go down there in the spring and see them blooming. They're, they're quite lovely. They're doing very well. There are some still some other plants there that my mom put in that still come up around the station in different spots, some mints and some different flowering things. Yeah, so lots of different things like that there. But the daffodils are spectacular. Moving on to recent years, how did you get involved with the Sheringham Point Lighthouse Preservation Society? My sister had seen an ad, I think it was in 2004, that they were going to have a meeting, and she mentioned it to me. So she and I both went to the meeting, and I became quite interested because the lighthouse at that point was still fenced and locked and nobody could go down there. So at that point, I became involved and and, uh, started, I don't know, I wouldn't call it work, but (laughs) certainly uh, started helping out with different things. And and just, you know, I I really felt that it was a heritage site and uh, the public should have access to it. Oh, yeah. And I'm sure the the group, the other volunteers, value your your input a lot because of your family's legacy there. It's great to have somebody like like you involved. And uh, I mentioned the book earlier by Rebecca Quinn Sheringham, a Canadian heritage story. Uh, you were you were pretty involved in that too, right? I mean, I can only really give the information about my own family's time there, and that sometimes there are misconceptions or misunderstandings about information. And so I like to clarify and make sure that the right information is, is going into publications. I did a proofread on it for them and made sure that things were correct. And yeah, you know, it's, 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 I like to be involved with them. Mm-hmm. I have two more questions for you for bonus points. Okay, so <laughs> get ready. And th- this will go on your permanent record. So There you go. <laughs> okay. Uh, first, why do you think the lighthouse should be preserved? Why is that important? We have such an extensive maritime history in this country. When we close up and stop acknowledging these areas or places that were linked to that maritime history, we lose a portion of it. We lose a portion of the history. And I don't think we should be doing that. I think our history should be preserved and keep it as intact as possible. Couldn't agree with you more. So my final question, again for bonus points, uh, what was your favorite thing about being a lighthouse keeper's daughter? Wow. Um, I think being given the opportunity to have the independence that only children in remote locations have, whether it be a logging industry, whether you're in a logging camp or a light station, fishing camp, that remote location gives kids a a huge opportunity to connect with nature. And I think that that was probably one of the best things for us kids growing up on the lighthouses was to have that connection to nature. I'm going to throw back at you uh, bonus points. Okay. (laughs) When people are talking about lighthouses, maybe not as much these days, but the historical information about lighthouses is we forget the sacrifices that the lighthouse keepers' wives made. Right. They went to remote locations and stayed. And when I talk about lighthouse keepers, 
I talk about my my mother and my father Mm -hmm. being the lighthouse keepers, as I do with others. And certainly these days, there are more and more women who are lighthouse keepers. But the women who went to lighthouses, some of them didn't have children. Some of them had children that they had to raise and teach, as my mom did. And uh, it it's not something that should be forgotten that it was a partnership with those women as well and they also learned to operate machinery and run lighthouses and certainly there were women who were injured on lighthouses one lady i remember that there was an emergency call went out for help because she had gotten her skirt caught in the flywheel of one of the pieces of equipment um, the air compressor or the generator or something, and had been flipped and broken her hip. So <clears throat> she wasn't a paid lighthouse keeper at the time, but she was there doing that work. And uh, probably her husband was busy with something else. I remember my mother operating the winch in days when only she only wore skirts mm-hmm. and having this skirt pulled up and tucked up between her legs to be safe so that she didn't get her skirt caught into right. the equipment as it was running. There were stories and are stories of women running lighthouses when there was no one else to run them back in early days and that. But uh, it, it, I think that it takes a very special kind of it takes a very special kind of people to go out there and make that commitment to lighthouses. I'm really glad you brought that up. That's that's uh, so important. The wives, the lighthouse keepers' wives, uh, don't often get enough credit, and of course. They were basically serving as assistant keepers, and occasionally they officially were, but usually unofficially in both the U.S. and Canada, and they weren't paid as assistant keepers, and they worked so hard, and as you said, often doing other things at the same time, like raising families uh, and keeping house and everything else. So I'm so glad you brought that up. It's a, it's a very important part of Lighthouse history. So with that, uh, I'm going to say thank you, uh, Ilani Bruton. This is all so interesting. Your family's Legacy at the Lighthouses in BC is is just fascinating, and it's so great that you have uh, shared that with with us and with other people. And in the book, uh, Sheringham, a Canadian Heritage Story, there's quite a bit in there about your family. And uh, I really appreciate you spending this time with me today. Thank you so much, Elani Bruton. Thank you, Jeremy. It was wonderful having a chat with you. To learn more about the Sheringham Point Lighthouse Preservation Society, visit their website at sheringhamlighthouse.org. This episode is part one of two. In part two, which will be posted on February 17th, we'll be talking with John Walls, Vice President of the Sheringham Point Lighthouse Preservation Society, and also with Rebecca Quinn, author of the book, Sheringham, A Canadian Heritage Story. Be sure to check out the U.S. Lighthouse Society's website at uslhs.org to learn about everything the Society offers. And remember that donations and memberships support this podcast and other preservation and education initiatives. And if you listen to us using Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us. And I have one more thing to mention uh, before we wrap up for today. We want you, our listeners, to be involved in this podcast. If you have comments, questions, or ideas, you can email me at jeremy at uslhs.org. Also, we're offering a chance for you, our listeners, to be part of this podcast. 
We invite our listeners to record their own show opening and we'll use them on the podcast. All you have to say is the following. This is Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is, insert your name there. Now here's the host of Lighthearted, Jeremy Dontremont. So you can email your recording as a wave, that's W-A-V, or MPEG, or MPG file, to me at jeremy at uslhs.org. And we'll be coming up with other ways for our listeners to take part in the podcast soon, so watch for those. As always, thanks for listening, and keep a good light. Bye.